welcome everyone to Science Society. I know people uh, will see, still keep coming in, but I think we can start on time uh, with introductions and go from there. So, and of course, a special welcome to you, um, Thomas. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to come here and um, present to us and talk with us about your brilliant research. And uh, let me give the audience a short introduction so they Wonderful. get to know you a little bit. Thank you. Um, so um, Dr. Thomas Kickland, he did um, his uh, bachelor in chemistry at the Cali California Polytech State University in San Luis. And uh, then he did his PhD at Caltech in chemistry and then moved on uh, to do his postdoc at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, when he later then um, worked as a scientist at uh, different companies, including Relix, uh, Sharing AG, and then Bio, um Healthcare Pharmaceuticals. And uh, now he is the senior um, investigator at Promega Corporation and I put the, the, the link to the company in the chat and also the paper we will be discussing here. And our first question to you is how did you um, realize that you wanted to um, lead this life of science basically? Was it maybe a childhood dream or was it something later on that sparked your interest, maybe a class or something that happened that made you pursue this career? Thank you. Yeah, uh, good question. As a kid, I always liked science. I, I was really interested in dinosaurs and paleontology. Um, so I, I think from a very young age, I really was excited about science. I don't think as a kid, I ever really thought about what a scientific career would be like. I mean, I wasn't that practical, I guess I would say. I just thought it was really fun and interesting, and I, I liked reading about it. Um, it was really when I took high school chemistry that I got excited about chemistry as uh, an area of study because I just find the the, the problem solving and the the chemical logic of how molecules are put together and how elements interact with each other. I, I've just my whole life since then found it really fascinating. And still there's new stuff to learn about that every day. And there's people doing really exciting cutting edge stuff that nobody ever thought of doing before. So it's a, I, I like it because it keeps my my interest and, and it keeps me engaged because it's not a, it's not a set field. It's not you know, that everything's been discovered and you're just doing the same thing over and over again. There's always something new, something exciting happening. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, and thank you for sharing that, um, that story that as a kid, you, you like dinosaurs mm -hmm. and um, those books, my, my son's uh, the same thing. It's really interesting. And just a, as a side note, that we discuss in the beginning, you know, what is interesting for kids to kind of go into this field um, that you mentioned that interest is, is really important because that's something also I thought about 
when my daughter then turned that age, mm -hmm. those books were really not designed for girls. And I thought, yeah. oh my God, she's not learning anything with the books that are designed for girls. So yeah, it's interesting that, um, yeah, I think the same way that those, you know, initial experiences are maybe important to basically spark interest. So, and, and then uh, from there, from, you know, discovering that um, you like chemistry and that it's something, you know, with ongoing, um, uh, yeah, interest and development of the field, how, how did you then uh, come to work in this specific project that is, you know, neuroscience related and neuroimaging, mm -hmm. which is really a wonderful, exciting field. How, how did you end up here? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I don't want to go on too long because it's been a bit of a winding journey, but I'll do my best to summarize it. Um, so when I left school and went into industry, I went into the pharmaceutical industry uh, and was a medicinal chemist. And I really enjoyed that. I think medicinal chemistry is a is a very exciting career trying to do drug discovery. But it's a very slow process to try to discover a drug. And so many things are completely out of your control. And when uh, Burlex was purchased by Bayer and our, our site was closed and I had to, to find a new position, um, I didn't know very much about the life science tool industry, which uh, is is where Promega is. But I I saw that they had an opening for a chemist, and I interviewed there and talked to them about what they did. And the life science tool industry, it's very similar to medicinal chemistry in the way you think. But what you're doing is you're developing tools for biologists to use to answer questions. But they don't have to be drugs. They don't have to go through the FDA and all of the clinical trials and you know things that can take a decade or more and fail for reasons that are so beyond your control. You have much more ability to um, get quick turnaround and to get something out in the market and out that's helping people. And one of the key areas that Promega works in is this area of bioluminescence, which I'll talk a little bit more about when we when I run through my slides. But bioluminescence turns out to be just a very adaptable and uh, useful way of making things that you're interested in seeing happening in a biological system light up. And you can detect that with a camera. And so, you know, basically there, like I was saying about chemistry in general, there, there's just been no end so far to the clever ways we can think of to tie biology that's interesting to making a bioluminescent enzyme light up when something that you're interested in happens. And this research just follows right along that category of, you know, we're really trying to find a way to study disease in mouse models and have a bioluminescent system that lets us visually see what's happening. Yeah, thank you for that answer. I think it's so fascinating and it has a lot of um, positives to use bioluminescence. I actually used it shortly in the lab um, 
collaborated with Uto Hukeshwenda. I don't know if you know her, but mm -hmm. anyways. I do. So. I, I actually <laughs> work with her. I, I'm still working with her. Actually, I just sent her some of this, the cephalofuramazine um, a month ago. So, yes. Oh, wonderful. That's, Perfect. That's a great connection. So, yeah. yeah, it will be a wonderful discussion to learn more. And uh, yeah, the stage is yours and everyone. The, the presentation link is on top of the room. Feel free to access it to follow along. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate the introduction so much, Katerina. Okay, let me run through this so everybody's on the same page of what I'm talking about. And then the, the part I'm the most excited about is answering questions. <clears throat> so on the first slide here, I want to talk a little bit about bioluminescent imaging because, as I mentioned, that's the entire um, goal of this project is a specific mode of bioluminescent imaging. Um, I'm not going to get into very much about why you want to do bioluminescent imaging. I'll touch on it, <clears throat> but that would be unfortunately an entire, well, not only a talk, that's basically, you know, you could spend, you could spend a lifetime developing these models. So I'll, I'll briefly touch on why people want to do this, but it's something we can, we can go back to in the discussion if people are interested. But if you take for granted, if you believe me when I say that there is a strong interest in modeling human disease in mice, and that one of the techniques that, that mouse researchers use when they're looking at models of disease <clears throat> is called bioluminescent imaging. So bioluminescence is a, uh, basically it's a phenomenon where a small molecule when acted on by a specific enzyme. So the small molecule is called a luciferin and the enzyme is called a luciferase. And this is back from back before people understood what was actually happening molecularly. It was just, they knew that there was this method of light production that was happening in, for instance, fireflies. And <clears throat> it was very different than other forms of light production. And what they eventually found out was there's a luciferase, it acts on the luciferin. So um, I don't have a pointer, so I'm just gonna have to sort of describe. The molecule in the middle of the of slide one is deluciferin. <clears throat> and when it's acted on by the luciferase, it is chemically converted into what's called oxyluciferin. And it enters oxyluciferin as an excited state. And to get back to the ground state, it emits a photon. And this is a very reliable reaction. <clears throat> it only happens when the active luciferin finds a luciferase. <clears throat> and so there are a lot of tricks that you can play to make that happen only when you want it to. So for instance, you can couple um, the growth of a tumor. You can couple the activity of an enzyme which is causing cancer or which is important in metastasis, so cancer spreading throughout the body or throughout the mouse body, to the formation of luciferin. And then every time you form a luciferin, if you have luciferase around, you get light. And so you can, in real time, in live mice, see if cancer is progressing if cancer is being cured by a drug you're treating a mouse with, et cetera. So it's, it's a very powerful technology to just sort of have eyes on the biology that's happening if you're clever with your enzyme and with your substrate. So the, the intro here on slide one is about 
And what you have to do is you have to get your enzyme and into the mouse in some way where it's where you want it to be. Then you have to find a substrate that can be gotten into the mouse in a way that gets to the enzyme when you want it to so that you get the light. And then the box that's on the right is you have to have some sort of imaging system to detect the light that comes out. So this is just a basic overview of sort of the building blocks you need to have bioluminescence happening in a mouse that lets you know something about what's happening in that mouse that's modeling human disease. So if we go to slide two, I now want to introduce the luciferase that I'm going to be talking about and the luciferin that I'm going to be talking about for the, the rest of the talk or analogs thereof. So I mentioned firefly luciferase at the beginning. That's been the most, that's the longest studied, best known luciferase, and it's still used quite a bit in bioluminescent imaging. But there's a whole class of enzymes that are orthogonal, meaning they don't have the same substrate or the same mechanism as uh, firefly luciferase. And these are broadly classified as marine luciferases. And one example of this luciferase is the Aplophorus luciferase. So if you look at this picture of this shrimp on the upper left-hand corner, and you see sort of the blue stuff coming out of the shrimp, that is a solution of both the substrate and the luciferase giving this bright blue glowing light. And through molecular evolution, we took the enzyme that the shrimp makes, and we turned it into something that is smaller, more stable, and much more active at converting its substrate into light. And on the right side of the screen, it shows that at the same time, and I'm summarizing about a decade worth of work in one slide, we converted the natural substrate of the original enzyme, cilentrazine, to a man-made substrate, which we call furimazine. And this um, enzyme and substrate combination has a lot of uses in uh, basically in vitro biology. So both in biochemical and in cell-based settings, there's this really long list of things that you can measure if you're clever about how you configure your enzyme and your substrate again. Um, you know, you can look at, is the luciferase being expressed in a cell? Is the cell alive or dead? Um, is a protein expressed that has a luciferase on it? Are two proteins coming together? Um, is a small molecule in a protein coming together? Um, et cetera, et cetera. And these are, it's really a widely used system because of its brightness, its stability, and its adaptability to all sorts of different configurations within a cell. And this was is so exciting that there is a there's been a desire for people to do this in mice because a lot of times people are doing these cell-based assays on very large scale, but what they'd like to do is cure a human disease and on the path to going from a cell-based assay to a human disease, almost always there is an animal model where you wanna see how um, your treatment or your disease course is happening in a much more complex model like a mouse rather than cells that are growing in a plate. And so if we go to the next slide, um, to, to do this in a mouse, we really had to solve some very sort of 
almost boring uh, practical problems. So furimazine was excellent for these the cell-based work that I was describing. But the problem was, is that it was too insoluble and it was difficult to formulate into a, a ready to use for injection into a mouse um, solution. And it also had what we call in the, the mouse biology field, uh, poor pharmacokinetics, which basically means that it did not circulate throughout the mouse very well. And this is partially due to its um, solubility, partially due to the, just its chemical properties and how it interacted with tissues. And so because we were getting more and more interest in people wanting to use this Nanoluck furimazine system in mice, we launched a collaborative project with a lab in Stanford. Uh, this was Michael Lin's lab, where we developed an analog of furimazine, which had the same core bright um, luminescence when it found Nanoluck, but it really was able to be injected into a mouse and to circulate and find Nanoluck wherever it was in the mouse and give a good, bright, sustained, well, sustained for a useful amount of time signal. And if you're looking at slide three, um, the compound in the lower middle, that's fluorofuramazine. So this was the compound that we that we developed and we published this in 2020. So we haven't yet gotten to the paper that we're talking about today. But in 2020, we published fluorofuramazine. And fluorofuramazine has been really outstanding for a number of applications that I show at the top of the slide. It's good for looking at our T cells going to tumors, our viruses infecting cells within mice, our cells releasing packets of information called exosomes. If they have an analog on them, fluorofuramazine lets you see where those are going, if they're being excreted, if they're transferring to other organs. Um, optogenetics even means that you can use fluorofuramazine. This is actually what uh, Uda Hokeshwender does to activate neurons um, in the periphery. And so this has been very exciting. And if you go to slide four, um, and this is just showing some of, some of the exciting images. So basically, if you look in the lower left, you can see SARS-CoV-2, um, this is COVID-19, the virus that causes COVID-19, um, that's injected into a mouse that has the humanized um, ACE2 receptor and it has an analog on it. So you can see where, what tissues it's infecting in the mouse. And here you see, um, this actually is taken from a movie where the mouse is rotating and you can see in 3D that it's infecting very specifically the lungs of the mouse as you'd expect from a respiratory virus infection. And on the right-hand side, you can see um, some brain images of nanoluck within the brains of mice compared to fibrociferase. Um, and so if we go to the next slide, to slide five, and this is available to everybody, these are just some publications um, showing sort of the characterization of the system. So if people are interested in reading more about some of the bioluminescence that we've published on in collaboration with some of our great collaborators, specifically the Laura Mezzanotti group um, is on several of these, and as well as the Michael Lynn group. Um, this is just some additional reading information that you can look at for 
uh, applications of this bioluminescence. But this has basically just been a long-winded intro to get to the paper that we are talking about today. Um, that's the link of which I believe is in the chat. And this slide on slide six explains why we wanted to develop a new substrate. So we we're very excited about fluorofiramazine. But the issue was, is we were also working with a number of neuroscientists. And neuroscientists were excited about fluorofiramazine because it was more soluble and got um, distributed throughout the mouse better relative to furimazine, the original substrate. But what we were finding was, and if you look at the images closely on slide six, the, these are all images of a mouse brain. Um, the words on the very left, VGAT driver and CAM K2A driver, those are basically two proteins that were picked uh, through a fair bit of effort. Um, as proteins that basically don't express throughout the rest of the mouse body very much, but express throughout the mouse brain. Because what we were looking for, and this was you know, driven by the Stanford lab, was a protein that would show us how substrates are getting into the brain. And what you can see if you look under the FFZ, the fluorofurimazine picture, is that even though the nanoluck was distributed throughout the brain, Excuse me. The image was showing very uneven distribution of light coming out of the brain. And we were able to compare that to furimazine, which is on which is to the left of fluorofuramazine. And there, even though it was dim because we were not getting as much furimazine into the brain because of its solubility and its poor pharmacokinetics, we were getting the distribution we expected. And so we had a sense there was an issue, and also we compared it to D-luciferin. We made a, a firefly luciferase expressing mouse. And again, with D-luciferin, you could see good distribution of the light coming from the entire brain based on these proteins that had the luciferase fused to it. So we this really convinced us that we needed to develop another substrate analog, and this led to another few years worth of work that I'm going to make sound very easy because I'm just going to show the end of it, where um, we developed, and actually when I say we, this was, um, these substrates were synthesized by an outstanding chemist named Joel Walker, who did all of the, the synthesis of the substrate. So I want to make sure to give him credit. And Yi Chi Su, who was the Su et al. on the, the paper, he did all the mouse imaging. So those are really the two main scientist drivers of this. They developed this compound, which we're calling cephalofuramazine, and that structure is shown here on slide six. And if you look under the CFZ, um, the images under CFZ on slide six, you'll see that we get very bright, but very uniform pan brain light emission, which is just what we were looking for. And so this got us excited that um, although it was a bit frustrating that we'd done all this work to develop an in vivo substrate and then we had to make another one, that we had now another in vivo substrate that we could recommend specifically for neuroscience use. And so now if you go to slide seven with me, um, this is just basically showing a high level summary of the many experiments we did to convince ourselves that um, CFZ was a good substrate. It, it met the criteria. 
So if you look at the left where it says P407, that's actually a an inert polymeric excipient. And I don't want to get too technical with how things are formulated, but basically the the P407 is there to be freeze-dried with the substrate so that you make a lyophilized cake that can be readily reconstituted um, because the CFZ and actually all of these substrates, if you just have a solid in a in a tube or in a vial, does not dissolve in aqueous media very well. You either have to dissolve it in organic solvents or you have to add a bunch of additives and often the mice don't react well to many of those additives, organic solvents. So one of the key things, and this also is part of the challenges of working um, in a company rather than working in academia, because we really focus on things like this as well, is having a reproducible, manufacturable formulation that makes it easy for customers who eventually want to buy the substrate from us to just add whatever buffer they want to add, dissolve the substrate in as with as little effort as we can possibly manage, have it be stable, and just be directly injectable into the mouse. So this is has been a challenge each time, but it's been uh, well worth the effort from the point of view of making this a user-friendly substrate for mouse experimentation. So we we did, this is a, a slight summary of quite a bit of work showing that we were able to find a region where we could add the right amount of P407, the right amount of substrate and develop a lyophilized material that would stay in solution when buffer was added. Um, we also showed that um, Antares, which is a derivative of Nanoluck that emits orange light um, with CFZ, was well uh, showed brightness that was in excess of some of the Firefly um, comparable systems, like Cicluck is a is a Firefly luciferin analog that gets into the brain better than D-luciferin, which is the the native Firefly substrate. So we did some comparisons like that. Um, there are Firefly systems that get into the brain well. It, that actually works well for us because you can use Nanoluck and Firefly luciferase in the same mouse and ask two different questions at the same time. It really increases the complexity of information that you can get. And since doing mice experiments is very time consuming and very labor intensive, when people want to set up these mice experiments, they want to get as much information as they possibly can. So showing these two systems work together was very important to us. And then in the lower right on slide seven, this is basically showing a titration. So if you add less and less CFZ, you get a steady decrease in the amount of light as you would expect. Um, and it's important for us to show that dose response, the more substrate you add, the more light that you get. And then if we go to slide eight, um, this is more the, uh, once we've done all the sort of basic work to show the substrate works well, then we can do some of the more exciting and thought-provoking experiments. So there's a, a lab at Brown, that Brown University, that has developed a camera that can be mounted onto the head of a mouse. And because for bioluminescence, 
Um, a lot of people do fluorescent imaging in mice, which works very well, but one of the tricks with fluorescence is you have to put light in and then measure light coming back out. Um, and I can get more into the mechanism of fluorescence if that's helpful, but just take my word for that at the moment. And the issue with that can be that that just causes you to have more equipment. You need a laser and you need a camera and there needs to be spectral separation and filters, et cetera. The advantage of bioluminescence from that perspective is all you need to do is detect light that's coming out because the light is generated on from the chemical reaction between the luciferin and luciferase. You don't have to stimulate it in any other way. So you can have a quite simple camera as long as it's good at detecting low levels of light because luminescence is not very bright compared to fluorescence. And so this head-mounted camera we could put on the shaved heads of mice, which is what's being shown in the lower left-hand corner there. And then once we've injected the cephalofurumazine into a mouse that's expressing um, Antares in the brain, we can actually measure the signals from Antares from the brain of a mouse as it's moving around in its enclosure and see some stimulation as the mice find stimulation in their environment. And so this is really getting at some of the more exciting behavioral studies. And you can look at behavioral modification. You can look at what various stimuli do to various mice by really just passively recording the light that you're seeing. And I'm showing some of the sort of renderings and then some of the more raw data and sort of how that data is aggregated on slide eight. And I'd be happy to answer more questions about that as well. But this is this gets to the power of what you can do once you've developed sort of the basic tools of the camera, the enzyme, the substrate, and the mouse that has the right biology happening in it. On slide nine, I want to show a different type of experiment that hopefully is thought-provoking about what can be done. So this really shows the power of altering the nanoluck enzyme in a way that lets you see things that you couldn't ordinarily see in a mouse. So one of the advantages about nanoluck that I haven't really touched on yet is it's quite amenable to being modified in ways that increase or decrease its activity dramatically. And so if you look on the left-hand side of slide nine, you can see this sort of cartoon of an enzyme in the middle on the left-hand side. And the gray and purple bit, you know, with all the sort of loops, um, is a rendering of calmodulin. And so what was done is this calmodulin was inserted into the sort of the teal in the middle, which is nanoluck, in a way that um, what happens with calmodulin is when it binds calcium, the whole protein domain undergoes a big conformational change. So it changes shape dramatically. And what that causes when it's inserted into nanoluck in this way is one shape allows nanoluck to achieve its stable light emitting state, and the other shape disrupts that. So you get an intensity difference whether the calmodulin is binding calcium or not. So what it lets you do on a pretty fast time scale, and this is shown in the middle, is couple the light that you're measuring coming out of a system 
to the concentration of calcium. And the reason that this is very interesting for neuroscientists is one of the one of the most well-established ways of measuring neuronal activation is that when neurons are activated, they release a burst of calcium. And so um, all of this under the hood stuff is really getting at um, what you can do is measure our neurons in a particular region of the brain being stimulated based on this sensor, this biosensor that's been developed for calcium, which now with this substrate that we've developed, and on this screen it's showing furimazine, but of course when we're doing it in a mouse brain, we're using the cephalofurimazine we've developed. Um, we can see the light um, going up and down based on these waves of calcium, and we can measure that in specific parts of the brain that we're seeing um, neurons being active, you know, turning on and turning off. And what's shown on the on the right is we're actually stimulating these mice. Um, so if we take hind leg stimulation, we can see in a part of the brain that we're actually getting additional calcium flux, stronger calcium flux based on that stimulation. So again, we're able to actually measure what's happening in the brain of a live awake mouse based on these molecular sensors that we've built. So um, on slide 10, I just have some basic takeaways, which is basically that we've developed over the course of several years in collaboration with the Stanford lab, two different substrates for Nanoluck that are designed for use in mouse. Um, one is good for the periphery. This is this fluorofuramazine I mentioned. And then this new one, which we're talking about today, is for central nervous system applications, this CFZ substrate. And I hope I've at least given you some idea of why you might want to use these, but I've listed at the bottom just some of the interest that the community has in the types of experiments that they want to do. Things like pathogen imaging, so brain infections, immune cell imaging, which is, you know, is the, are immune cells getting into the brain and either causing issues or trying to, to clear infection, et cetera. Uh, tumor imaging, so gliomas are a type of brain tumor that are, you know, very traumatic, uh, have a very high death rate. There's a lot of interest in trying to treat them, and this is a way to image those tumors. And then other types of neuroimaging models, which can range from um, early developmental diseases like autism, uh, neurodegenerative diseases that happen in the elderly like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, or normal brain development as well. There's a lot of interest in understanding how just brains develop because that's still not well understood. And then I'm not going to talk through it, but just so you know, on the final slide is a not complete but hopefully uh, helpful list of some publications where if there are applications you'd like to read more about, um, there's links and you know the titles of papers there. So I just wanted to provide that. And with that, I think I've been jabbering at you for quite long enough. So I would love to make this more interactive. So Katarina, well, questions? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, this was a really uh, wonderful presentation, and it's a quite, you know, impressive. Um, technology um, um, that was developed um, and um, yeah let's go ahead with uh, some questions 
Um, so I, I wanted to mention also the part that you don't need an external light to activate um, mm -hmm. this is really important because you don't have uh, damage from that light and it's a cold light so you know it has been shown that it, uh, just the heat of the light that it can change neural activity and also lead to damages so 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 that bioluminescence is kind of a cold light is really mm -hmm. another advantage i think that is really important and um it's also really interesting how how you guys developed um the calcium imaging at um uh, that combined with uh, this technology so are you planning on um on combining it to more uh signals let's say potassium for example would that be possible it, it is possible we don't currently have any plans we're, we're not currently building that though actually what we're doing right now is we've come up with a list of interesting analytes and uh, domain protein domains that bind those analytes um the fluorescent protein community has been doing amazing work over the past, oh, I'd say almost 20 years at this point, but um, very continuously developing protein, uh, fluorescent protein sensors that read out fluorescently um, on certain analytes based on binding domains, which work exactly the same as I was describing for the calcium one. So we are, of course, not going to reinvent the wheel. We're going to just you know, adapt what's been already developed for those domains. And I know that there are a couple cal uh, potassium binders. Right now, we're interested in voltage and we're interested in glutamate. Those are kind of the two that have percolated to the top specifically, especially for neuroscience um, applications. Uh, the voltage actually is also interesting for uh, cardiac applications as well. So, I would say potassium is definitely not off the list. It's just not the next thing up, if that's fair, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, the voltage um, one is, is really important. And then in the chat, um, owner asked what the time scale is or the time resolution is for the calcium imaging. And then probably it will be probably similar for the voltage imaging in the future. It depends. So. It, it's a really good point. Um, I'm, let me try to get a little more technical. <clears throat> so there's another way that we're also doing uh, voltage sensing. And this actually is, has been published a year, about a year ago. I could also include that link. I'm not sure if it's in the slides. It may not be. Um, no, I could, in, I could send that separately when we're done doing this. Um, so we've, we've there's a there's a different mechanism for measuring voltage, which actually is around a light quencher that moves in a membrane, and this is a very old mechanism. Actually, it was discovered in the 70s that if you take a molecule with the right polarization, <clears throat> and you have a membrane that has a variable potential over it. And if the membrane is polarized, the molecule will move to one side of the membrane. If it's depolarized, it moves back to the middle. 
And so if you take Nanoluck and you tune all of your absorbances and emissions right, which is you know sort of the 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 work of it, you can actually quench or dequench the Nanoluck signal based on the movement of a quencher. And that gives you a, a faster response than sort of the, the protein confirmation signal. I did see somebody mention in the chat that the calcium response is a bit slow. It is a bit slow. We, we do think that we can measure. We've done you know, neuron experiments and we are able to get at single neuron activation fluxes, but the voltage has to be about 10 times faster and we're at least close to being at that. Um, at that rate. And I would also argue that um, one of the main things that we're doing now, and one of the reasons I'm excited to be talking to the world about this, is trying to partner with people who have cutting edge applications where they need sort of this high temporal performance, for instance, and see if we can adapt our systems to make them meet those needs because you know they're not they're not perfect as is for sure. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, that's really exciting uh, that um, that you can basically use those tricks to to address uh, you know the time um, resolution. Um, um, and then let me check again uh, if there was another one in the chat. No, but um, so you mentioned also that you can use this to basically. Uh, look for different um, cell components, um, right? So that is also really interesting. Are you working on that also for, um, you know, for the neuroscience application? Does there need to be anything changed? Because I'm looking, I'm thinking about, let's say, immune response of glia cells and so on uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, has been coming up more and more in like autism related and so on research is there um you know is there plans on maybe collaborating with labs to working on that i think that would be really exciting me too um and the answer is absolutely yes if we can find those labs i mean one of the things that we're limited by is we can't do that sort of discovery biology work on our own it has to be collaborative so we're very excited about finding labs that are interested in doing, you know, having these sorts of reporters measuring out on <clears throat> neural systems in real time, you know, in live mice and applying them to those sorts of challenges. Another area that we are becoming more invested in at Promega is also this field of organoid research. So, you know, Mice are very are very good biological models. They're well established, and they're not um, using mice as disease models is not going anywhere because there's some things you only learn by investigating a complex organism and seeing how it responds. But we're getting into more um, for deconstructing some of those models. These neural organoids and even you know single neurons or neural neural sheets and there's a lot of different variations on a theme there. They're also very interesting, and one of the reasons that I'm very excited about the CFZ substrate is 
it lets you sort of translate your research from sort of uh, immortalized cell lines, very simple cells, to some of these more complex cell models like neurons, to 3D models like brain organoids and assembloids, including ones that can have multiple cell types like motor neurons mixed with glia, even mixed with immune cells. So you can get at some of those interactions that you were describing. And then also at the same time, be looking at mouse models, where of course all that, you know, all that and much more complexity is happening. And you can hopefully, if you can have the same readout and the same underlying um, biology that you're looking at in all of those models, start to get a better holistic sense of what's happening in some of these complex diseases. But that's, of course, that's aspirational, right? We're, we're not there yet, but that's the direction we're trying to go. Yeah, I agree. It's a really exciting new field that has been, I read um, an article that, um, you know, there has been like a composition uh, organoid been developed with like different types of tissue types that could be connected, like built like a Lego machine. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yep. it's it's a really exciting field, and I agree there are a lot of things we can do in mouse models, but a few things like neurons have been shown in humans to be quite different. Um, right. So mm -hmm. I agree that um, that is. Uh, a really exciting new field and I hope it develops. We still have the issue though to scale up the, um, the tissue height, right? Um, and then still that we still have cells surviving in the middle um, yes. good enough and vascularization, but I-, vascularization I is the Vascularization yes. <laughs> combined with scaffolding is, is, is a critical issue in organoid research right now. And actually independently of this is something that at Promega we're, I mean, we're not alone, but we're trying to address directly because yeah, reproducible organoids and organoids that can stay healthy as they grow to useful sizes, it's still a, a challenge in the field. There's a lot of creative ideas for how to solve those challenges, but no, no, Nobody's come up with the answer yet. It's still, it's still tricky. Sorry, and I didn't mean to speak over you, but I just want to. I was, I so oh, agree yeah. with you. Oh yeah, yeah. Don't worry about that. I'm, I'm also Portuguese, so we speak over each other all the time. No, but, um, yeah, I agree. There, you know, we had the guest speaker here from from a lab in Israel. I think it was it's the Weizmann. Institute, um, mm -hmm. where they did a lot of, you know, progress in um, having embryos developing in an artificial womb for, um, you know, more and more extended time. Mm -hmm. And uh, we went through, you know, <laughs> what type of, um, what type of ACSF and then how many, how much sugar to give and how to rotate. I don't yep. know if any of that is useful for organoids, but um, yeah, it's 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 really interesting uh, field that um, yeah probably needs a lot of creativity. So, but I'm really looking forward to that because 
I think it will give us so much better insight into the human system. And can I can I go a little bit away from uh, something regarding the ethics we discussed here before, just to know maybe your input? If you don't want to go there, just let me no, know. Please. What do go you ahead. think of the ethics of organoids, especially neuron related? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, we had the guest speaker here. They, he does a lot of brain organoids. Um, he's sending them now with NASA to space and mm -hmm. he recorded brainwaves that were very similar to regular, you know, brainwave patterns once he scaled up those organoids. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I don't have a, I share some un discomfort with it and I don't really have, I would guess, a formulated, a, a formulated position on it. I feel like most of the organoid work that has been done so far is still artificial enough that we haven't sort of gotten to the threshold where you know we're we're dealing with human intelligence or something that's like a human. But the issue is, of course, that we're we're trying to be on the path to get there. So we shouldn't wait until we get there to have these conversations, right? And one of the other things, bringing it back to animal models, there's another aspect which we haven't talked much about yet, but I'm I'm sure you've you know about, which is things where where people are trying to humanize mice and rats for a lot of disease models, and that includes putting in human immune systems, putting in human neurons, um, transplanting organ neural organoids made from human brain cells into mice and rats and seeing that they integrate and actually talk to the brain of the mouse and the rat. And also there, there's there's some sort of line where, I don't know, where, where you become a little human-like in, in a rodent or you're creating an entirely new organism that we don't quite know what emerging properties it's gonna have. Um, but it might have something like human intelligence as well. And I don't think that just stopping the research, I mean, I think one of the knee-jerk reactions may be to just say, well, just don't do that because, you know, we shouldn't mess with that. I I don't find that a compelling argument because, um, it, A, it's quite helpful for the human condition to understand these things, and B, we don't really know what that this is going to actually cause problems. It may actually be quite helpful. But I do think we need to be very much paying attention to staying on the biological model side where we're not trying to create human intelligence, we're not trying to create artificial humans or artificial human brains um, without, without having some of these, without coming up with ethical guidelines first. And I, I just, I haven't seen it happen. I haven't seen ethical guidelines I'm comfortable with yet. So I think it's going to be a matter of both staying, keep doing what we can in neural research, which is actually quite a lot. It, it's developing quite quickly, but being intentional about trying to come up with ethical guidelines for the research and staying away from things that are quite human as we do that. And I I find that to be a pretty dissatisfying answer, but I really don't have a better one. I think we just need to keep talking.
Yeah, I agree with that. And, and it was interesting that actually the lab asked for guidelines and didn't get, you know, as mm -hmm. you already said, didn't get much, you know, should we toss out the experiment? Basically? Should right. we stop it? Should we not stop it? You know, and, and the, the answers coming then from NIH and so on was, was quite, you know, we didn't discuss it enough. I agree. The interesting other point I wanted to make, and I know we are far away, but I know LT here will bring us back to the actual <laughs> topic. Okay. Uh, it was uh, Mike Levin was here presenting his uh, theory about minds everywhere. So basically, I don't know if you know the theory, it's basically, you know, he's developing the Xenobots and just for everyone also here to give a very short overview. It's, Basically, the future of the mind will change because we will merge maybe with, you know, different organoids to patch mm -hmm. up our brain. We will merge maybe with robots. And so the percentage of just human intelligence organism to maybe having 5% to 90% non-human will just vary and be a spectrum and that our view kind of have has to change. I think that was quite interesting thought that I, I didn't have before. So I don't know what you mm -hmm. think about that. I, I mean, I do, I, I think it's worthwhile to have the hypothetical discussion about what that might be like. But what I keep coming back to is our best scientists, and that's you know well beyond me, we can't make a bacterium from scratch or a mitochondria or a cell nucleus. We don't even understand what's happening in parts of cells, let alone the ability to understand everything that's happening in an actual mammalian or a eukaryotic cell, which is far more complex than a prokaryotic cell, let alone a neuron, let alone a brain. And so it's one thing to be like, you know, we shouldn't, we should be careful not to accidentally um, create human intelligence that we then don't know what to do with. And I think that's an important conversation to have. The idea that we're near to designing neural systems that we understand how they work and we can uh, predictably manipulate them. I mean, maybe I'm a pessimist, but I see all the gaps in our understanding and knowledge and go, you know, it's it's good, it's nice to talk about these things, but we're so far away from understanding how they work that it's it's a little there's a little hubris in trying to go, yeah, we should talk about what it's gonna be like when we've, you know, invented brains that we can put in robots. I mean I, I'm not saying we'll never get there. I'm just, I don't think we're close. I don't see it happening in my lifetime, but you know, I could be surprised. I just, I think some people, I, I do think that sometimes people don't stop and look at how far away we really are, what are, what the gaps in our knowledge really are. And to do something like that on purpose, we could do it by accident, but I don't think, I don't think we're close to doing it on purpose.
Yeah, I, I agree with you. To completely design it from scratch, I think we are far away and I'm not sure if we ever will. The question if if we ever have to, I guess, is also something that he discussed and many people also in artificial intelligence discuss, especially right mm -hmm. now, I guess. And if we accidentally also there could be... Um, you know, creating something that is maybe conscious or sentient by accident and, and we are not, you know, dealing with it um, ethically accordingly. Right. Yeah, right. So. <laughs> I yep. accident them all the time to us, so I think that's probably very likely. But, and yeah, I don't know. Um, it's a really interesting it's discussion. It's such an emergent property. I mean, and it's so difficult to to quantify using anything that I'm aware of, you know, in, in a sense of something that we can work back to first principles. And there are other really interesting systems like bacterial biofilms or colonies, like fungal colonies, um, like mollusks that have these odd differentiated nervous systems that are not like a brain but still are able to um, <clears throat> think and draw conclusions and act in a way that's in accordance with their interests in a way that doesn't work like a brain. And then, like you say, we have all these neural networks and artificial intelligence, you know, sort of software systems that again are, are really not in many ways, not very similar to a mammalian brain or a, uh, you know, what we would consider a vertebrate type brain, but they they clearly have power on their own. And, and we don't, you know, right now we're just kind of trying to understand what things can and can't do and how, you know, we're, we're making rules by just doing iterative experimentation, you know, just see what happens if you tweak this thing. We're, we're so far away from any sort of designer intelligence in any of those systems. It's, I, I think it's probably the most profound, one of the most profound problems facing humanity, you know, science is what is intelligence and how can you predictably create it? I, I have no idea what the answer is. I just know how hard it is to try to answer that question. Yeah, I agree. And I'm really sorry I pulled you there. It was not my plan at yep. all. But um, I wanted to give, uh, we could probably, I think it's a very interesting discussion. I could go on and on about it. But I wanted to give LT an opportunity to talk. Hi, LT. Welcome. Hello, hello. Oh, I'm so sorry. I came late. I missed I missed all your talk. But can you ask a couple more questions because I'm going through your slides. Oh, you, you want me sure. to ask a couple of more questions? No, no, no. Oh. You can you can ask more questions because I'm I'm quickly like browsing through your slides. I could ask a very basic basic question because you you proposed that there's two chemicals that I see structured right, CFZ and HFZ and FFZ. So yeah, these are, those, are all analogs of furimazine. Yep. Uh, and then we produce them in vivo ourselves too, because you're done no. with you. No, these are all made in the lab. The only thing, the only chemical, um, the, the chemical that this was all based on that was made um, not by 
um, mammals, but in the by uh, sea creatures. So this is a marine luciferase oh, or windrazine. Okay. okay. So yeah, this is this is synthesized in in the ocean by by uh, actually quite a few different types of, of marine species. And we have we we can tolerate them. At least mice tolerate them. Okay, right? There's no there's there yeah. There, it's it's <laughs> pretty non-toxic. Well, <clears throat> we have established what the toxicity limits are, and we make sure to stay below the toxicity limits. So it's relatively non-toxic, and we've done the analysis to to make sure that we're we're not giving toxic doses to the mice. Um, you know, for both for ethical reasons, but also because if you start kicking off toxicity pathways, you usually wreck your animal models. So right, right. There's a practical so, reason to not have a toxic dose, also. Okay. The my next question, probably naively because I didn't go through all your slides, is that you can monitor the cell, but can you monitor certain region, localize the particular portion, for example, mitochondria, or mm -hmm. another way, nucleus, or like I mean, cellular, like membrane, for example, you like i don't know I pick, yes. you can pick up any channels let's say chasm channels can you can you yeah, can so, you target that precisely oh that's yes yeah so this is something that we um that i didn't really talk a ton about um <clears throat> certainly in in isolated cells and of course you could just translate this to the to the mice <clears throat> well it, you can translate to the mice there, there's a few logistical challenges but because we developed uh, na the nanolock luciferase to be so functional as a protein fusion, you can either, uh, the most simple way to do what you're asking is to take a protein that you know is either is in the mitochondria, is on the nuclear membrane, is um, basically extends out in, into the cytosol from the cell membrane, but is anchored, um, extends into the cytosol from the inside of the membrane. We've done all of these. Um, you just fuse the nanoluck to to a protein that is where you want it to be, and then you know you're getting images from from that spot in the cell. And we've done quite a bit of bioluminescent imaging work to confirm that many of these canonical proteins fused to nanoluck are in fact generating light there and nowhere else. Um, it's also quite an interesting localization experiment because you can then you can then do things like look at protein-protein interactions or protein-small molecule interactions that are only happening in the specific compartment of cells. And, you know, one of the things, one of the ways that you can use that in animals is basically take cells where you've um, done this and then actually just inject the cells in the animals to form, say, a tumor or <clears throat> some cells will actually, you know, just form a benign growth. It's not really a a malignant tumor, but you know, uh, a mass of cells that will be healthy and you can image. So absolutely you can. <coughs> Sorry. Okay, great. Thank you. And um, then I have you have another friend on stage. So let him ask a question. So I'll I'll keep going through your slides. Thank you. Thank you, mm -hmm. Katarina. It's so it's it's such an interesting topic. Yeah, thank you, LT. I, I knew you would like it. <laughs> I was happy to see you. And um, I wanted to check with you first how your time is. If you have time for another one or two questions or... Yeah, another couple of questions going... would be fine. I, I could go like, you know, to 
to 110. Would that be good? Okay, yeah, perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, Amir, please go ahead with your question. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hi, everybody. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you, Katerina, for arranging this series of scientific discussions and rooms. I always enjoy them. And thank you very much, Thomas, for the excellent presentation and work. Uh, so I have used uh, PMIR Glow Vector uh, mm -hmm. during my PhD eight years ago. Time flies. And uh -huh. I, I always enjoyed uh, well, the accuracy and the reproducibility of the results I was getting from the dual luciferase system. Uh, so as we learned from you today, uh, the CFZ reagent is uh, uh, much more advantageous for in vivo studies especially if we deal with brain. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if uh, if uh, you're going to implement this also in the ex vivo or in vitro assay kits. Uh, is it um, also advisable to use CFC uh, mm -hmm. instead of traditional or, or more traditional uh, uh, substrates? And right. is this going to be implemented or already? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, it's a great question, and, and thanks for bringing it up because I didn't speak to it directly. So the answer is no, um, and the reason is is because in these in vitro systems, the CFC actually doesn't give advantages over the existing furamazine uh, systems. So we are, we we may actually be making fluorofuramazine, which is the other substrate that I mentioned. Uh, available for in vitro work because it might have some specific advantages in some types of cell experiments. We're still actually trying to nail that down. But generally speaking, the liabilities of furamazine are really in in mice <clears throat> and generally in animals and tissues. Um, when you're in, even in ex vivo, and actually there are some references, some of the references in the list on slide 11, where people have shown that they've had challenges in in live animals with furamazine, where they sacrifice the mice and actually take the organs of the tissues and add furamazine to them, they get extremely bright and easy to measure light. And so there's been quite a few, um, for instance, in infection models, um, ex vivo experiments like that, where furamazine um, works extremely well. So no, we're not planning on substituting furamazine for in vitro purely because we just don't think it's needed. The 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 key advantage of the cephalofuramazine is that live brain BBB crossing ability. Mm -hmm. I see. Yep. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's starting to become a bit tricky to um, actually internally at Promega as well to say which substrates are good for what. So we're we're working quite hard to, to nail down sort of the matrix of, if you're doing this type of experiment, we recommend you use this substrate. Um, you know, because we, we wanna, <clears throat> we wanna make people's lives as easy as possible. <clears throat> Let them get the answers that they want, that they, the best answers that they can get. Yeah, thank you for that question. And I think, you know, it's especially important again to emphasize how um how easy bioluminescence is to use because of the relatively cheap setup you can have and for many labs that don't focus on neuroimaging or a lot of labs that <laughs> traditionally just 
that um, electrophysiology are maybe equipped to do to have like more fancier imaging lasers and so on. But but for other labs that want to add that um, to their um, infrastructure, basically this this is really wonderful because they don't have to spend like half a million on a mm -hmm. setup to do a really good brain imaging. Yeah. So, uh, LT, did you have another question? If not, yeah. Yeah, quickly, very quick, and the answer would be yes or no. So besides mouse, any other animals you used this trader? Um, I, I love this question because I, I really like the idea of using this in other animals, but we've done very little. So I know people have done it in rats with some success. Rats are a bit challenging just because they're bigger, so the light penetration out of a rat is more difficult. Um, it's been tried in zebrafish, but I haven't seen the data. I wish I could say, yep, it worked great. Um, I haven't heard that it doesn't work. I just haven't seen the data yet. Um, when you get into invertebrates, um, things like Drosophila, C. elegans, Xenopus, um, well, Xenopus isn't an invertebrate, but the Xenopus embryos, which is most people use, which, you know, you're not, there's no bones yet. Um, furimazine actually tends to start working just fine for those type of experiments um, because those organisms are so small and they don't have much tissue scattering and the pharmacokinetics is not as, it's not as critical because you don't have nearly as sophisticated a clearance system you can basically bathe the organism in the substrate and it just absorbs everywhere. So, so the short answer is um, I would like to have more data with other organisms, but the reality from a, from a, a commercial point of view is that mice are the, the dominant organism. So it's why we're really focusing on mice because just for every one experiment that is done in a different kind of a model organism, there's over 10 mice experiments done. So eventually I'm hoping that it'll turn out that these are great, or actually if it doesn't, we may end up doing other projects where we find an analog of furimazine that's great for say fish or um, drosophila. But so far, I just, I don't have much data yet. We really, we, the starting point for us has been making this work in mice. But it's a great thank question. You. Thank you, thank you. No more questions. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, thank you so much uh, for those questions. And the the very last one, because you said, you know, the mouse one is the most prevalent, but um, you're interested in the organoids one. And the company you're working for is, is, is a little bit working on it. Would there be yeah. a possibility to hook it up or are there any plans to kind of a VR type of setting to elicit some behavior of organoids maybe? Is there, or is that too science fiction? No, we don't have any plans to, but it's, it, we are working in the VR space and we are working with organoids. I just, we have not gotten to the point of trying to make them play together yet. I would say we're still pretty basic in both of those. We're we're trying to play catch up more than trying to, you know, push the field. So I'd be interested in designing experiments like that, but no, we we definitely have not gotten 
to that level of sophistication yet. Yeah, it's interesting. We had we had the yeah. guest speaker that did the pong, you know, making mm -hmm. those organoids play this game. Yep. Pong. Would be interesting to have, you know, the bioluminescence imaging at the same time and see, you know, different components. Lighting, I, this is where I want to get to also this this concept of you know electrophysiology measuring and stimulating you know so you can do things like read you know how the the organoid is responding to an actual environment or a virtual environment or a combination of both you know the augmented reality and look at what's happening at a at a biochemical level at a protein level with bioluminescence all at the same time. And I think it's possible. I, I really think you can. We can do it. But there's a lot of pieces you have to build and optimize so that they play nicely together to get to that point. And that's really, that's the the grunt work we're doing now. Yeah, it's an exciting future. And so mm -hmm. thank you so much for sharing this research. And we will be really curious to follow um, the research um, that is coming out of um the company because you know we alluded to a lot of interesting <laughs> new future works and whole fields i guess if you have the yep. field of like interactive organoid imaging and probably bioluminescence and um eliciting genetic how would you say that optogenetic doesn't work but you know what i mean <laughs> yeah but, um, I mean, people are reporting on you know what what what's happening the function of different you know molecules in in neuronal systems of everywhere from a single neuron all the way up to you know eventually a, a monkey or even a human possibly yeah yeah it will be interesting and it scales up the efficiency so by so much by using imaging techniques so um yeah and we wish you all the best all the luck and we will be really curious to follow it in the future and um yeah thank you so much for taking the time for this very broad discussion you know from very broad topics to very detailed ones so thank you appreciate it no thanks for having me i really appreciate the invitation and it was this was a great experience so thanks for thanks for walking me through it getting me all set up on the system and and being such a great moderator really appreciate oh, it thank you yeah that's wonderful we always enjoy when the speaker you know, has fun because it's a, then we don't feel like parasites, basically. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay. So uh, enjoy your weekend. And everyone, thank you for coming, for um, sending me questions. Uh, it's always more interesting um, when there's like a broad variety of questions. And um, if you would like, um, Rafai, hear from our science society team he will um do a more educational room later at 4 p.m est uh, to teach uh, people how to set up you know their own ai um, how to set up their own ai chatbot you know I, I i strongly encourage him to do that because i think broader education especially then uh, distributing it to play around the world where higher education is really not available, especially for women. Um, it's something we are working on. And um, so we record this here interactively with a discussion in the end. 
but then we'll distribute it around the world. So thank you so much for participating, everyone. Happy weekend if I don't hear you later on. Thank you. I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.